Major media outlets say that 2020 was a year like none other. Today, we'll talk about the major events and political, social, and economic developments in the past year from an anti-capitalist, anti-war, and anti-racist perspective. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. today's episode of In the News, our Tuesday show on the socialist program with Brian Becker. It's December 29th, 2020. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now, today, and this week. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate-owned media. I'm Nicole Roussel here with our host, Brian Becker. Brian, let's go over 2020. There were a number of big stories this year, and frankly, our personal big story was that we started this show. Yeah, it seems minor compared to everything else, compared to COVID, the national uprising against racism, the 2020 elections, and many, many other stories. But of course, uh, we did another uh, radio show podcast, Loud and Clear, every day for five years. We had more than 1,200 episodes, 6,000 interviews. We abruptly uh, ended that show or had that show ended August 31st and we started over again and have created an independently hosted podcast, The Socialist Program, which we're discussing today and our listeners are listening to today. And Nicole, we could not have done this. This was a big task to go and become independent. We could not have done it without the support of so many people. That's right. And so for everyone listening right now um, who are patrons on patreon.com, thank you so much. Uh, For those of you who are listening and enjoying what you're hearing, please become a patron. This is uh, the end of the year, a great time to become a patron. This is the only way that we can continue bringing this um, programming. And we're at patreon.com slash the socialist program. So Brian, the mainstream media are saying that 2020 was a year like no other. But you could make that point about each and every year. I mean, history doesn't exactly repeat itself. But that said, 2020 was different, and it was very distinct in critically important ways. What do you think is the biggest story of this year? Yeah, that's a that's hard to choose from. I mean, is it COVID? Is it the mass unemployment that came uh, as a consequence of the government's failure on COVID? Was it the national uprising against racism that was unprecedented following the murder of George Floyd? Uh, was it the weirdness of the way the U.S. elections uh, ended, or if they have, in fact, even ended? Uh, there's a lot to a lot to pick from, Nicole. But I think that when when I think about 2020, the thing that I I think jumps out in terms of a big picture perspective, and I think it's something for everyone to consider, is how dynamic society is, how dynamic politics is, and how dynamic. Uh, the political, social, and economic movements are that are are shaping the world. Uh, things shifted almost overnight in so many ways. I mean, with COVID, uh, suddenly, not only were people getting sick and people dying, but people in the United States, at least, because of the failure of the U.S. capitalist system and the U.S. capitalist government, and I mean both parties, 
because of its failure, tens of millions of people lost their jobs almost overnight, almost overnight. Uh, COVID did not lay them off. COVID did not fire them. Uh, Bosses fired them. Uh, Corporations fired them. Businesses went out of business and thus they lost their job. There were myriad reasons people lost their jobs associated with this particular form of capitalism in the United States. It wasn't COVID. But nonetheless, just think about the dynamism of that where suddenly out of the blue or seemingly out of the blue, this pandemic comes, people are getting sick, 60 million people file for unemployment insurance all within a few weeks. And then the murder of George Floyd, which was not that unusual because, frankly, police forces in America routinely, sickeningly kill black people and brown people and poor people and working class people with impunity day after day. And they kill several people per day. That wasn't unusual. But what was unusual, what was dynamic was that the protests in Minneapolis uh, spread like wildfire, drawing in tens of millions of people. So when we think about 2020, I think the big picture for me is change happens dramatically. It happens unevenly. It's not a history is not a matter of just slow gradualism where everything builds upon that which came before it. But there are these sharp contradictions, sharp conflicts, sharp breaks, many of which are unanticipated until later in history when historians can look back and look at all of the underlying subterranean uh, factors that then they will say, well, that event that seems so unanticipated, so unusual, so distinctive, so out of the blue was in fact the inevitable byproduct of these other set of underlying circumstances. So the dialectic, uh, the force of change, the motion for change, and the fact that things do change, it seems to me that that in a in, in one way may be the big story that revealed itself in 2020. Very well put, Brian. I mean, I think that's such an important framework to look at this year through. So let's go through the year as it happened. Um, you know, it was almost a year ago now on January 3rd, uh, 2020, that the United States assassinated Iran's most important general and a few other Iraqi leaders in a drone strike at Baghdad airport. That was, like I said, almost uh, a year ago to the day, January 3rd. And we'll talk about today all the big stories that you just mentioned. Um, but let's start with this really shocking news from almost a year ago. So again, um, the United States killed in cold blood with a drone strike, Qasem Soleimani and other Iraqi officials. And we're going to start with a clip of President Donald Trump bragging about having killed him in cold, completely in cold blood. Last night at my direction, the United States military successfully executed a flawless precision strike that killed the number one terrorist anywhere in the world, Qasem Soleimani. Soleimani was plotting imminent and sinister attacks on American diplomats and military personnel, but we caught him in the act and terminated him. Now, Brian, that's not at all what was happening. Um, Qasem Soleimani was meeting with Iraqi officials when a drone came over the Baghdad airport and and killed him completely out of the blue. Uh, talk a little more about uh, what happened that day and and you know why it happened. Yeah, it wasn't that the U.S. caught Soleimani in the act of committing terrorism. In fact, 
The Iraqi government had invited the Iranian government to come to Baghdad to participate in peace talks, regional peace talks. Soleimani, a leading general, the leader in the fight against ISIS uh, for the Iranian government, was assigned that task. He flew at the invitation of the Iraqi government to Baghdad airport. By the way, the Iraqi government had consulted with the Trump administration prior to the meeting. So uh, the Trump administration knew Soleimani was coming. They indicated to the Iraqi government that they, uh, you know, that they were for this discussion. Soleimani arrives. He's greeted by popular uh, leaders in Iraq, people who were also uh, leaders in the struggle against ISIS in Iraq. He arrives at Baghdad Airport. He's getting. He gets into the car that's to take him to uh, the negotiations in Baghdad, and the U.S. executes him with a drone strike. So uh, this is a cold-blooded criminal. Uh, it's a war crime. It's a crime against humanity. It's an international criminal act by the Trump administration, with the hubris and the arrogance uh, that is, you know obvious and evident, not just with Trump, but with every American political leader, every American president who feels and asserts that the U.S. has the right to be the judge, jury, and executioner of other people around the world. And as a consequence, we almost came to the brink of war. I mean, real out-out war. It was an act of war. But, you know, the day before Soleimani was executed, Nicole, uh, I'm, I'm, in addition to being the host of this podcast, I'm the executive director of the anti-war coalition called the Answer Coalition, which started three days after the September 11th, 2001 attacks and, and a coalition that led mass anti-war protests during the Iraq war. Millions of people literally came out uh, in that year-long mass movement against the Iraq war and in the years that followed. We called a demonstration for Saturday, January 5th, all around the country because we felt the U.S. was about to do something with Iran. The crisis was growing between the United States and Iran at that time. The killing of Soleimani happened on January 3rd, and that Saturday, January 5th, the anti-war movement revived. You had uh, uh, demonstrations in more than 70 cities. Thousands of people were marching here in Washington, D.C. We were joined by trade unionists, leaders of unions, leaders of community groups. Jane Fonda came to the demonstration. Uh, and the anti-war movement was responding because it looked like there was going to be another major war in the Middle East. Iran retaliated, and they what they did is they struck two U.S. military bases in Iraq with a dozen missiles. The missiles were a measured kind of retaliation. The U.S. reported that there were no deaths among U.S. soldiers. And then Trump step back. He didn't retaliate for Iran's retaliation. In other words, Trump stepped back because if he had not stepped back, we would have had a full-blown regional war. Tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people would have died. Uh, again, the recklessness, the hubris, the arrogance of imperialism of Trump uh, taking the world uh, almost to the brink of a major conflagration. And again, uh, as it turns out, when, when Iran showed that it could hit American bases, they could, they could have hit a lot more American bases, they could have killed a lot more Americans. Uh, I think that was the deterrent. That was the only thing that actually stopped the U.S. from proceeding. This meddling in other countries, this killing other countries' leaders, these um, coups that the United States government um, does with impunity, this 
is a bipartisan affair and it's not only done internationally, it's done nationally as well. It's done here in this country where um, we just had a series of primary elections uh, in the Democratic Party this past year in 2020 that started early on in 2020, where it, very clearly the establishment of the Democratic Party did their own rigging and their own meddling in those processes. One thing I think that is incredibly important that um, that I, I fear history will forget but that is so important to talk about it. I want to ask you about now is what happened on Super Tuesday this year. Super Tuesday, of course, is the um, during the Democratic Party primaries is a number of states, uh, I think in the 20s, perhaps, but a, a, a more than a dozen, maybe two dozen states have their primary elections all on the same day. And so it's this, you know, this big day where a lot of results come in. Um, and up until that point, Bernie Sanders this year, Bernie Sanders, somebody who called himself and calls himself a democratic socialist, uh, he was in the lead by by a, by a good bit. He was looking very very strong. What happened on Super Tuesday? Well, let's let's start with the Soleimani thing and go into the elections because that's January. It, it looks like through the month of January there might be a war with Iran. The other thing that's happening in the news during the month of January is Bernie Sanders' campaign is getting stronger and stronger and stronger. And Super Tuesday, which is where a great number of the of the primaries happen, the Democratic primaries in early March, there was an earlier primary, Nicole, in Iowa, the first primary, the one that comes before New Hampshire. And that was, I believe, February 3rd. And if you remember, Bernie Sanders won the popular, he won the popular vote in the Iowa caucuses in early February, the first uh, primary. But there was this failure to be able to count the vote. And so instead of Bernie Sanders having the momentum bump from his popular vote victory, I, I mean, Pete Buttigieg, who's from Iowa and who was a mayor in Iowa, got one more delegate than Sanders. But Sanders actually won the popular vote. But nobody knew it. Remember, in early February, they couldn't count the vote. That was the first primary. And, you know, we have an audio clip going back because this was the sabotage of the Sanders campaign where Sanders, instead of getting this huge bump going into New Hampshire and then Super Tuesday, something weird happened. Let's listen to this audio clip. This is Jordan Sheraton of Status Coup discussing the Democratic National Committee's manipulation of the Iowa caucuses. Forget Russia and the boogeyman. The DNC actually meddled and it, it had a downstream effect. Remember, I went to New Hampshire after Iowa. We were covering a status coup. Buttigieg got a 10-point bump because of this delay uh, in reporting the results and the media propping him up as the winner of Iowa. Frankly, Bernie, as per usual, uh, I mean, I was asking Bernie's campaign, why aren't you in court right now? Why aren't you in court challenging this? Brian, I'm, I'm glad you went back to Iowa because that's it's not where it all started because this has been going on a long time, but this is within the primary is really where the rigging began with the Democratic National Committee coming up with an app that all of a sudden needed to be used to count according to the DNC. And again, you know, the DNC is just a the political headquarters. It's not some sort of, you know, state or federal legislative uh, director. You know, this is a private entity that was telling the Iowa State Democratic Party all of a sudden with just a week or two before the caucuses, you have to use this app. You have to train all of the elderly poll workers and um, caucus organizers and workers on on this app. And it turns out that didn't go very well. And then there were there was an incredibly long delay, if people remember, 
um, which, as Jordan pointed out very well in that clip, resulted in a huge bump for for Pete. This was just the beginning of this rigging process. Yeah, the media the media said we can't count the vote, but we proclaim Pete Buttigieg to be the leader. Remember, that's how it came across Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. The thing kept dragging on. In fact, Bernie Sanders won the popular vote in the Iowa caucuses. But then right before Super Tuesday, when when again, uh, Bernie, in spite of those sort of obstacles put in his path, was still by far the great leader. Joe Biden was considered like a real washout. He was like the fifth. He was ranking fifth in the among all the different de- de- Democratic candidates approaching Super Tuesday, where if Bernie won decisively, he would have such momentum that even the super delegates at the DNC would not have been able to overcome him, and he would be the nominee of the Democratic Party going against Trump. So right at the last second, right before the Democratic Super Tuesday primaries, Pete Buttigieg withdraws, Amy Klobuchar withdraws, others withdraw. They all rally behind Joe Biden. And that's after they get calls from Barack Obama and the Democratic establishment is twisting arms. All of the other competitors who are draining votes uh, from each other are basically quit the race all at once. They all show up with Joe Biden the night before Super Tuesday. The Democratic machine is in full gear. And all of the uh, expectations that Bernie's about to win the Democratic Super Tuesday primary decisively and become the nominee, all of that's shattered all at once. Um, and and Biden becomes the front runner. Within a couple of weeks, he is proclaimed the, you know, the, the nominee, Bernie Sanders folds his tent very, I would say, very pathetically. Uh, anyway, let's listen to, just to remind people how this all played out. This is um, this is a, a, another audio clip. It was a CBS discussion in early March uh, asking correspondent Ed O'Keefe how Biden is going to attack Bernie Sanders. Again, this is just weeks before Bernie starts to support Biden. Well, Ed, we heard Sanders attack Joe Biden for his record on the Iraq war, the bankruptcy bill and cutting public benefits. Do we know how the Biden campaign is looking to go after Sanders? They'll make the broader argument that Sanders isn't necessarily equipped to unite the party and then defeat President Trump. You've heard the the vice president over the last uh, few weeks now make an argument. I'm not a socialist. I'm not a plutocrat. I'm a Democrat. Brian, I think that clip is so you know, important. And it really paints the picture of Bernie, who was really fighting for, you know, until he gave in, he was really fighting on the issues on the things people care about. He was fighting about, you know, expanding healthcare for people. He was fighting for eliminating this huge and growing and completely unmanageable student debt. He was fighting for basic minimum wage raises. He was fighting for things that people need. And then uh, I I think this guy is right. Uh, Ed O'Keefe on CBS says, well, you know, I, I think Bernie or I think Biden will just make the point that like, well, he's you know, he's just not right. Like that's that's the whole campaign. That's it. You're not going to talk about any of the things that the people actually need. Yeah. And so when we think now going into January 20th, 2021, when Joe Biden ascends to the White House, uh, where we had this amazing election where 80 million people voted for Joe Biden That was a referendum, not on Joe Biden, not on his policies, which are against the working class, against the poor, against women, historically a very, you know, damaging and negative to the black community. Uh, It wasn't a referendum on Biden or 
a referendum on his policies. It was a referendum on Trump. And 80 million people came out and voted against Trump. Now, those people would have voted against Trump if Bernie Sanders was the candidate. The other people who would have voted for Bernie Sanders were other parts of the population that may even consider themselves politically conservative, but would have appreciated Bernie's, uh, Bernie Sanders' demand for Medicare for all, would have uh, agreed with Bernie Sanders that students shouldn't be uh, saddled with student debt, they agree with Bernie Sanders' a program that housing should be reorganized and it should be made affordable for all people. Uh, Biden could not reach into the social working class conservative base of the Trump campaign because his program was not for them. His program was for Wall Street. His program was for the military industrial complex. As Biden promised, nothing will fundamentally change. That's an exact quote that he used to, to assure the capitalist establishment that that's the kind of uh president he would be. But that's not appealing to working class people uh, and poor people who are, at least at the moment, some of whom are, large, large numbers in fact, are uh, swayed by the demagogy of the right wing, swayed by the demagogy of the Trump campaign. Uh, again, Bernie Sanders would have defeated uh, would have defeated Donald Trump more handily than Joe Biden. And uh, what we would have is a, a liberal, not a socialist, but a liberal president. But the American ruling class, the capitalist establishment, Wall Street, they don't want even a liberal administration. They don't even, because Bernie Sanders would have been like an LBJ type administration, not a radical socialist or even social democratic government. It would have been a, a slightly more liberal government. But the, the capitalist establishment in America doesn't want that because with a liberal government, more working class people will think, wait, we should have more. Wait, we should have Medicare. Wait, we shouldn't have all the student debt. Wait, we shouldn't be evicted. Wait, uh, we should actually have affordable housing. And when people have higher expectations, they fight more. When you're when you have no high you don't have no expectations, you don't fight. But when you think, hey, I can get this, I should get this, and it and I can get this, you you tend to fight. That's what the establishment doesn't want. That's why they were against Bernie Sanders. That's right. That's exactly what happened. And fast forward just a couple, I mean, really just a couple of weeks from, from that point. And that's when this year really started to become this really distinctive year that we mentioned that we you know indicated at the beginning of the episode. That's when the COVID pandemic turned from an illness, turned into an epidemic and turned into a real world pandemic in March. Um, there were signs of it, of course, in January and in February, now that we look back. Um, but it started to really hit the American public's consciousness in late February and in March. Um, and I, I want to play a clip. This is a compilation of President Trump's early comments about the pandemic, because, um, you know, we we now have hindsight. We now have uh, all this clear um, clear vision as we look back on this year. And we know now, of course, how incredibly serious the pandemic is and how incredibly serious the coronavirus is. Um, but most of us knew that in March. Most of us saw how many millions of people were being affected by this. Um, uh, you know, we were able to see that in, in Wuhan, China, where um, it probably began, where the coronavirus probably began, there were thousands of people who uh, were infected. And that happened very, very quickly. But the Chinese were able to lock down 
effectively, quickly using um, a very organized, centralized system that they have over there. They were able to uh, in really rapidly increase testing, uh, the availability of testing. They um, tested everyone in Wuhan. They were able to build um, necessary hospitals in just days in order to isolate, in order to quarantine, and in order to treat um, and, and help people get better. Um, that's not what happened here. And in fact, here, as of today, December 29th, there are 19 million cases here in the United States and 335,000 deaths. It's really, you know, a year ago today would be completely unthinkable. Remember how this seemed in January. Remember how this seemed, you know, so, so long ago. But today we have that many, 335,000 deaths. Whereas, again, in China, they still have 95,000 cases total from this entire year with 4,700 deaths, which is, of course, a lot of deaths. It is nothing compared to 335,000 deaths that we have here in the United States. Let's hear a compilation of, uh, of, of President Trump's comments early on in this pandemic. The words about a pandemic at this point? No, we're not at all. And uh, we're... We have it totally under control. We're now up to our eighth case in the United States. Um, how concerned are you? Well, we pretty much shut it down. You know, a lot of people think that goes away in April. We have contained this, I won't say airtight, but pretty close to airtight. Within a couple of days, it's going to be down to close to zero. There's a chance that it won't spread. It's going to disappear. One day, it's like a miracle. Almost everybody that we see is getting better. And it could be everybody, too. Uh, they're going to have vaccines, I think, relatively soon. And they're going to have something that makes you better. And that's going to actually take place, we think, even sooner. We have thousands or hundreds of thousands of people that get better just by, you know, sitting around and even going to work. Some of them go to work, but they get better. Nicole, um, if it wasn't for COVID and Trump's handling of COVID, uh, he would have won re-election. Uh, it's quite clear that he's more popular than he was with his base uh, four years ago. He got 63 million votes in 2016. He had 70 million votes this time in spite of COVID, in spite of this failure, in spite of the fact that his uh, failure to do what was necessary, which was to uh, take it seriously, not, not minimize, shut the economy down for four or five weeks completely, and do as the Chinese did, move decisively so that the economy could then reopen. Instead, they went in the opposite direction. If it hadn't been for this, Trump would have won re-election. Now, that's something for people to really, really think about. But in terms of the death rate, last week, it was about it was about 2,300 deaths per day. That's the number of people who died on 9-11. You know, the U.S. declared a war on terror. It invaded Afghanistan and then Iraq and bomb Libya and all of this under the, the the big broad banner of the war on terror emanating after September 11th. Well, 2,300 people a day dying from COVID. The number, as you said, 335,000 deaths. About 90,000 Americans are expected to die in the next month alone. That means the number of people who will have died from COVID is equivalent to the number of U.S. soldiers who were killed during World War II. And again, uh, this did not have to be, certainly the people did not have to lose their jobs. The U.S. capitalist government, as a policy choice, decided to give the money, $5.5 trillion in, 
in, in relief, either from the government or from Federal Reserve, to the biggest banks, hedge funds, corporations, uh, not to the masses. The masses of people got $1,200 check, a boost in unemployment for a while. And even now, this ridiculous stimulus package uh, was passed where people get a one-time payment of $600. And it's only Trump and his demagogy at the end who said, this is a disgrace. There should be $2,000 uh, you know, for people for to, you know, to, to bring relief to those who are suffering. 40 million Americans are facing eviction right now. Uh, the poverty numbers have gone through the roof. 8 million more people in poverty. 50 million people are officially hungry or, quote, having food insecurity in this, the richest country in the world. Uh, again, all of this is a failure of the capitalist system. And again, when we think back about 2020, uh, we'll have to remember that this crisis was not simply a health care crisis. This was the crisis caused by American capitalism. Right, because this wasn't this was a crisis of, of healthcare, and it was also a crisis of the economy. And these were all choices that were made because other countries didn't make those choices. Other countries made choices to increase testing, to actually build the resources out that were necessary. Um, other countries made the choice to bail people out to make sure that they had uh, payment for you know being able to live on their basic things when it was healthier for everybody, for no one to go to work, for as few people to work as possible. That's not what has happened here in the United States, and as a result, people have been you know in this horrendous state of poverty, as you mentioned, of hunger. We've seen huge mile long lines at food banks like we've never seen before. Um, and I, I just want to read a couple of quick stats. You know, all of the unemployment numbers that come out are very limited. They don't actually include everyone. They have things segmented, um, you know, based on what's the quote unquote labor force, but that doesn't never includes everybody. But in April, 18 million people were temporarily laid off. Now in September, we've got 4.3 million people who are still temporarily laid off. And again, that doesn't count everybody. Uh, still in September, 3.7 million people who have been permanently laid off. Um, there's 7 million people who are not in the labor force, but want a job. And of those, there's over a million people who can't seek work right now because of family or transportation reasons. So they're not only not getting the money that they need from um, the government because, you know, we, we need to be staying home to be healthy, but they're not not even able to try to get jobs because of all of these other ways that American capitalism have failed them. It is completely horrendous. And to your point, it is a choice. Let's go on to certainly one of the biggest stories, maybe uh, outside of COVID, the biggest story of the year. And that, of course, is the nationwide uprising against racism, which has created so much change, which has changed so much already uh, and will become an enduring part of American politics. George Floyd was murdered in Minneapolis. Uh, he was suffocated cruelly, brutally by uh, a police officer in Minneapolis, the guy put his knee on his neck. You can see it. He slowly, nonchalantly took his life. It was so gross, so disgusting. People in Minneapolis rose up. They rose up and they started a, a, a movement that engulfed tens of millions of people. 35 to 45 million people went into the streets at some point during those next weeks half of them for the first time coming to a demonstration. This was unprecedented. And as a consequence, uh, Southern or, or Confederate uh, statues came down. Military bases were renamed. 
there were lots of, e- even if it was symbolic, it's important from the point of view of education and consciousness. Uh, things started to shift and change. Uh, the National Football League started to pay tribute to Colin Kaepernick, who it drove from their league. I mean, a real act of hypocrisy. Major League Baseball started this year with every player in some of the games taking the knee. Uh, anyway, a shift in consciousness. Uh, let's start with how the Trump administration responded, because if you'll remember on June 1st, which was a turning point in this nationwide uprising against racism, that's when Trump was trying to call out the military, meeting with the governors of the 50 states, demanding that they you know, engage the, the citizens or the people of their state who are engaged in protest as enemy combatants. Uh, we have an a audio clip. This is Mark Esper uh, talking with President Trump on a call with the governors. Let's listen to how they actually talk about the people of the United States. And to your point, before we start that clip, Brian, George Floyd was murdered on May 25th. This phone call is June 1st. And what you'll hear is Mark Esper, um, who's speaking. And again, this is on a phone call with governors from around the country, with Attorney General Barr, um, President Trump and others from the administration. And he's describing how governors need to think about, um, you know, really, quote unquote, dealing with protesters. At my urging, I agree, we need to dominate the battle space. Uh, you have deep resources in the Guard. I stand ready, the Chairman stands ready, the head of the National Guard stands ready to fully support you in terms of helping mobilize the Guard and doing what they need to do. Dominate the battle space, Brian. Yeah, dominate. that's Mark Esper, Secretary of Defense, talking about uh, people engaged in protest as uh, the enemy, basically, enemy combatants. And, and certainly the police, uh, it wasn't just the Trump administration, state, and uh, local police departments engaged in fierce repression against people. People were tear gassed in more than 100 cities. They kept coming out over and over again. Large numbers of people are still awaiting trial. We're going to talk about the case of the Denver uh, organizers who organized these sustained mass peaceful protests, uh, unlike any that had ever taken place in Aurora, Colorado, uh, demanding justice for Elijah McLean, a 23 year old black man who was, you know, cold-bloodedly murdered while he was walking home from a store by the Aurora Police Department. Uh, We'll talk about what happened to them. They're facing decades in prison right now. There was lots of repression, but what happened on June 1st, uh, the same day that Mark Esper was talking about dominating the battle space, Donald Trump walked across Lafayette Park. Just remember this, everybody. That was June 1st. He walked across Lafayette Park in, in order to have a picture taken of himself with a Bible in front of St. John's Episcopal Church on the north side of Lafayette. And uh, the police just violently attacked people who were protesting peacefully and the media. And that was supposed to be just, you know, it showed the Trump administration was willing to engage in violence so he could have a photo op. And instead of intimidating people, uh, all the people in the United States who are suffering and facing not only persecution and prosecution and repression from Trump, but also from their state governors or curfews imposed by local mayors here in Washington, D.C. The mayor of Washington, Muriel Bowser, had imposed a curfew. Democrats and Republicans, local and state and federal officials working together to repress the mass movement. And instead of it working, on June 2nd, more people came out Millions of people came into the streets to say no to that, and that's when the movement hit its next plateau or sort of spike, and it really went 
to an unprecedented level. That's really that's really the point when there were truly millions of people in the streets. We were able to see that here in Washington, D.C., um, and you're right. I mean, I, I was there on June 1st. I watched Well, I, I was uh, shot with stinger grenades. Um, I was tear gassed. I was shoved by police um, in their their riot gear, their nice, safe, you know, safe, protective gear while they shoved me on the ground. Um, and I was there as media and there were a number of people there as media and a number of people there as peaceful protesters. And you're exactly right. I went out the next night and it was even more people were horrified by what had happened, completely horrified and angry. So and angry about very righteously angry about what had happened. And that really was the spike in in the movement. And it continued for months where it really reached new levels of consciousness, reached new levels of um, of the working class. People really, I think, opened their eyes a little bit more. There was more media coverage than there had been in years um, about these really important Black Lives Matter protests, about these incredibly important, um, you know, revolts that were happening in all sorts of cities against racism and against the racist police violence that happens nationwide. Nicole, I want to play a, another real quick audio clip, just to, because we're remembering 2020, and then I want to go on to Denver if we can. But uh, remember, uh, there was a CNN reporter. Uh, he was covering the protests in Minneapolis. He was live on CNN. This is how arrogant and racist the police are, how, how empowered they are, that a CNN reporter, while broadcasting live, was arrested by the same Minneapolis police department that killed George Floyd and visited so much repression down on the heads of people who were engaged in protest. Uh, afterwards. And that protest in the case of Minneapolis erupted really into a full-scale rebellion as a consequence of the way the police and the government handled all of this. Here's a short audio clip. I just, again, we just want to remind people what it was like back during the height of this nationwide uprising against racism. This is among the state patrol unit that was advancing up the street saying and scattering. This is the video captured on live television as Minnesota State Police arrested CNN reporter Omar Jimenez and crew. I'm sorry? You're under arrest. Okay. Do you mind telling me why I'm under arrest, sir? Why, why am I under arrest, sir? Officer is with CNN and he's under arrest right now. You are arresting him live on CNN. We told you before that we are with CNN. They were covering the ongoing protests in Minneapolis, which were sparked over the death of a black man named George Floyd, seen on video gasping for breath while a white police officer knelt on his neck until he became unresponsive. Amazing. Uh, again, that's what it was like when the cops in Minneapolis arrest a CNN reporter doing a live on-camera CNN report. And just for everybody who might not have been in the streets, uh, if you if the police are doing that to a CNN reporter who's on camera on national TV, just imagine what actually happened to all the other people when the media wasn't on them, when the cameras weren't on them. There was so much repression. Uh, it was so violent by the police department. And yet the same mainstream corporate owned mainstream media largely portrayed all of the violence coming from the demonstrators, coming from the protesters. And so Trump was able to use that as a as a big campaign platform where he was trying to convince uh, people in the United States who were not there, not present, that in fact the the violence 
uh, was coming from the side of those who were protesting injustice, when in fact it was the police over and over and over again. And I'm just, you know, it's so gross, Nicole, when I read the reports now where there's like after action uh, assessments of like I saw something in New York City where New York City has determined that there was some overreaction on the part of New York City Police Department, and it was found to be troubling. Well, no, if you were in the streets, you know the cops in New York and the cops in Aurora, the cops in Chicago were visiting violence on people all the time, and most of it was not captured in the media. Anyway, let's let's turn, Nicole, in our last couple minutes, because the nationwide uprising against racism is a titanic struggle. It's an indicator. It's emblematic of of America because the big issue in America since 1607, in the North America since 1607, since the, the settler colonization of the continent began, is the issue of racism. Racism directed against uh, enslaved African people back then and their descendants now. Racism against the indigenous native populations that inhabited all of the Americas before the European uh, colonization took place, uh, racism against immigrants and particularly against Latino and now Asian Americans who are suffering the collateral damage of the anti-China campaign. Racism, racism, racism. I mean, you can't think about American politics, the class struggle in America, the struggle for justice without the focus on racism. In the case of Denver, and this was a byproduct of what was going on during the nationwide uprising against racism, organizers from the Party for Socialism and Liberation and others, but particularly the PSL, were involved in leading sustained, massive, and peaceful protests over and over and over again, demanding justice for Elijah McClain. And on and the young man who I mentioned earlier, 23 years old, violin player, he was walking home uh, from a store and somebody called the police and said, this guy is acting strangely, suspiciously. They come there and they kill him. And the police are not uh, arrested. They're not fired. And the, the organizers were organizing protests, demanding justice, demanding that the killer cops be held accountable. But suddenly after the George Floyd killing and the nationwide uprising, those protests became larger. They became bigger. And the leaders of these sustained peaceful protests were then themselves targeted on September 17th. They were There was a massive uh, uh, police raid. Uh, they were arrested. They were held for eight days in solitary confinement before bring, being brought before a judge. They now face decades in prison. Uh, one of them, Lillian House, um, who has the most the the greatest number of charges is facing I think forty eight years in prison. Uh, Joel Northam uh, almost forty years in prison or a little bit more than forty. Eliza Lucero decades in prison. These were the leaders of a mass peaceful protest, and while they were in jail and before they could even see a judge, people started to organize, and this has become the epic battle for free speech rights. There are many others, but I consider this to be the premier epic battle. And even while they were in jail, people went back into the streets, now demanding not only justice for Elijah McClain, but justice for the people who were being targeted by the police, the people who had organized mass peaceful protests. Here's a clip from CBS Denver News uh, covering the demonstration that took place while these folks were still in jail and before they were brought 
to a judge, even for their arraignment. And we absolutely condemn the politicized, retaliatory arrests and charges that are being brought against peaceful, nonviolent protesters. Attorney Mari Newman was there Saturday by the side of the mother of Elijah McClain to show their support. Then hundreds of protesters took to the streets. Nicole, uh, as we go into 2021, we have to we have to raise political support and mobilize political and legal support uh, for the defendants in Denver and all the others who are facing long prison sentences because they organized protests during this historic nationwide uprising against racism. On January 20th, Joe Biden takes office. People are going to be there at the inauguration demanding health care for all, Medicare for all, demanding a moratorium on evictions, demanding not just $2,000 as a one-time payment to families in need, but $2,000 a month because this was a crisis caused not by the working class, uh, but by the capitalist class in America. People are going to be in the streets from day one of the Biden administration demanding justice. But as we do it, we have to raise the banner of those who are targeted for repression and long prison sentences. We have to do it for those in Denver, those in Louisville, those in New York, and all the other political prisoners right now who have become victimized or the government is attempting to victimize them. The old slogan from the labor movement, an injury to one is an injury to all. We have to stand with those who face trial, persecution, and long prison sentences. So we have our work cut out for us in 2021, Nicole. And I'm so happy we have this program to help our audience understand the big issues of the day, of the month, of the year, in order to be able to provide perspective for those fighting for justice. That's right, Brian. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. <laughs>